everyone, and welcome to another episode of Climate Ready. This is Ingrid Timbo, and I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Alex Maroner. We've got a very interesting topic lined up for today that is both thought-provoking and, I'm happy to say, fairly contentious, finally getting some drama here on Climate Ready. So in today's interview, we cover managed retreat, which is a concept that we all agree could probably use a rebranding campaign, and one that is becoming more and more of a talking point as floodplains and coastlines face increased flooding, extreme weather events, and sea level rise. For expert insight into this topic, we are joined by Dr. A.R. Siders, who has a new article out on the topic in the journal Science. We'll discuss some of the benefits and opportunities of strategic managed retreat, as well as the numerous challenges in implementing or even just discussing the approach. Dr. Siders brings in some real-world examples to highlight the numerous cultural and social justice implications as well. Following the interview, we continue with another Climate of Hope perspective. Only this time we have a slightly different take as we have the youngest guest to date join the show to tell us what it's like growing up under the cloud of climate change and how that affects the outlook of a 10-year-old. Stick around to hear more. Now sit back and enjoy. Climate Ready is a product of Agua, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de. Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water. So today on Climate Ready, we're very excited to be joined by Dr. A.R. Siders, an assistant professor affiliated with the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware, where her research focuses on climate change adaptation policies with an emphasis on managed retreat and environmental justice. Her work spans several geographic regions, including infrastructure development in the Arctic, coastal defense in the U.S., and urban resilience in Europe and Southeast Asia. She's here today to discuss coastal climate change adaptation and the critical need in many areas for a serious conversation about strategic managed retreat. Dr. Siders, welcome to Climate Ready. Thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, I was wondering if you can define managed retreat for us and for our listeners, and how might it differ from other types of migration or human resettlement? Yeah, managed retreat is purposefully moving people and buildings out of harmed way. It's a planned, coordinated effort, and this is what separates it from just moving or from migration. Those happen when a single person or a household decides to move somewhere else. But when a neighborhood or a community moves together and has support from government or external organizations, then that becomes managed retreat. It's also about moving away from a risk. Well, even though climate change is already impacting all of us through a number of different manifestations, its its effects are felt certainly uh, more in some specific areas, especially in certain floodplains and in coastal areas. What is the tipping point that prompts the process of exploring managed retreat 
And how's that decision made and maybe who starts this conversation? Conversations about managed retreat arise in a number of different ways. One of the most common in the United States is that there's a major disaster, a huge hurricane, a huge flood, a huge wildfire. And after people's homes are devastated, and especially if they've been hit multiple times over several years, and the question slowly starts to shift from how do we build back into should we build back or should we build somewhere else? Exactly what gets people to reach that tipping point in certain locations is still kind of an unknown. It's an area of research people are working on right now, people talking to homeowners who decide to relocate, what made them decide to participate, or what made them decide to stay and not to participate, what made local governments get involved. For the federal government, the U.S. federal government has funds that are available for relocation after major disasters, and their incentive is trying to reduce risk and reduce cost. So they're promoting this from a life-saving and an economic decision. But people have to come to this decision on their own as individuals. And exactly what makes them reach that tipping point is still something we're trying to figure out. Interesting. Is there a process for having these more involved community conversations? Or is it still like an individual or ad hoc one-on-one type decision-making process? So far in the U.S., managed retreat has been pretty ad hoc. It's been pretty individual. And what I mean by this is it depends on each community having one person who's willing to step up and be the leader. So when we see Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy, one leader who was in the community really took charge and said, I think our community should start talking about accepting buyouts and about relocating away from this risky place. And he really drove that conversation and talked to his neighbors and started getting people involved in thinking about that. Uh, we see similar things when whole communities move. So Valmeyer, Illinois, is an example of an entire community that relocated. And it took a leader. It took the, the mayor at the time who started these conversations and said, all right, now it's time and we're going to start having these difficult conversations. In the U.S., relocation is still a voluntary process. So every single homeowner still gets us the choice. Uh, right. The community can't force them to relocate. The government can't force them. So each homeowner will still have to come to that decision personally and individually. But at a community level, we see these leaders start to emerge who drive this conversation. We're also starting to see some external groups. There's a climate migration network now that is trying to foster conversations about relocation. Uh, the Consensus Building Institute is doing some work, especially in New England, about envisioning the future. LA Safe was an effort in Louisiana to just start the conversations, not to push people to retreat, but to start them thinking about, would you want to retreat? Or how would you want to retreat? Or, you know, if you don't want to retreat, what do you want to do? Because these are conversations that we don't often have in the United States. You know, it's very rare that we sit down and say, what do you want your community to look like in 50 years? Yeah. On some level, though, climate change is going to require us to have those difficult conversations. And right. I think that's going to require a lot of individual leaders and communities. This just sounds so incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. <laughs> To even begin, like where, you know, where do you even begin to just grapple with these, you know, crazy forces, but we need to have these conversations. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> it's incredibly difficult. And, and frankly, the fact that you and I are sitting here having this conversation right now is a major step forward. I mean, 10 years ago, this kind of conversation wasn't even happening, right? I mean, just 10 years ago, right? So after Katrina, even after Sandy, not even 10 years ago, even after Sandy, 
right? What did we hear? We heard rebuild back. We heard, you know, build it back better. Never retreat. We're never going to abandon the waterfront. But you get hit over and over and over again, right? And people start to think, maybe that's not the right option. <laughs> maybe there's something better, right? There, maybe there's something better we can do. And managed retreat is one of those options. It's not the right answer everywhere, but it'll be the answer for some places. And so these conversations are difficult, but I'm encouraged by the fact that they're starting to happen more frequently. When we're thinking about managed retreat or, or any of these types of moves or moves away from risks, we often focus on things like infrastructure or homes, buildings, and the people themselves. But oftentimes this process involves the relocation and unfortunately sometimes the destruction of social, cultural, and spiritual assets and spaces, which oftentimes have deep connections to the physical land itself. So can you say something about this aspect of managed retreat and how might we think about or ensure that these aspects are, are preserved or effectively relocated? The cultural aspects you're referring to are actually, in my opinion, the most important and the most difficult elements of managed retreat. We know how to move a building. That's an engineering problem. It has an answer. We can solve that. How we think about our relationship to the land and our connection to places is far more difficult. Scientists call this place attachment. People develop strong emotional ties to the places where we live. We have deep memories, we have emotional connections, right? This isn't just a building, it's the house where you raised your kids, it's the beach where your husband proposed, it's the home your grandfather built. Those are the important elements and those are the, the challenging aspects in managed retreat. And some of the ways to try to address this are to preserve as much as we can of those connections while relocating. So some ways to do this are to think about how far do people really need to relocate? Do we need to move away, you know, 15 miles or is enough to move three blocks away from the ocean? Sometimes just a small amount of managed retreat leaves a buffer between homes and the ocean or the floodwaters. And just even a small buffer can make a big difference when we're talking about reducing flood risk. So that's one element, is trying to preserve connection to the coasts and to these places without actually living right on them. Sometimes it's about giving people a reason to move. So when you say to them, if we move your home back, we actually will preserve this beach and preserve this coastline better because it won't have a home on it. It won't have to put sand walls. We won't have to have you know, all this infrastructure there, instead it can return to being the open, lovely beach that you remember from your childhood. And don't you want to be able to pass that on to your grandkids or to future generations? So sometimes it's about retreating is actually a way to maintain that cultural asset. There's also slightly more practical ways people talk about. Elise Devar does research on flood memorials in the U.S. and how putting in memorials help people process the feelings of loss that happen with a flood or loss when you move from your home and you lose some of this connection. And internationally, we see this done better. The Netherlands has uh, an amazing museum that's cataloging the stories and collecting the stories and memories of people who still remember the 1950s flood in the Netherlands that changed their entire approach to water management and eventually led to them becoming a world leader in, in flood management. In the U.S., we don't do that as much, but we could. It's a place where we could improve, would be to think about how do we create these memorials? How do we remember what we used to have? Artists play a big role in this. Documenting these places and telling those stories is a big aspect of this. There's also ways to connect without living there. 
One of my favorite examples here is Portsmouth, North Carolina. They have a homecoming celebration every other year. So even though they relocated away from the coast, they still gather, have a big party, eat a lot of great food, and remember what the community used to be like when they were still there. So they're still maintaining their connection and their tie to that land. They just don't live there in an at-risk place anymore. On the last season of Climate Ready, we talked to the author Elizabeth Rush, who wrote the book Rising, which looks very closely at issues of, of equity and social justice in coastal communities that are facing climate change, specifically in, in America. We talked a little bit about some of the, the cultural significance of this, but from your research and experience, how are issues of social justice being included or ignored in the conversation about managed retreat? Social justice is a particularly difficult problem with managed retreat. It's particularly difficult because there isn't agreement as to whether retreat is something that is a benefit that we should be trying to give managed retreat support to low-income or minority communities, or whether it's a harmful thing that we should not impose on low-income and minority communities or disadvantaged peoples, right? Is this a good thing that we want to give to those communities, or is it a bad thing that we don't want to enforce on them? And the answer is, it's both, right? And it depends on how it's done. If it's done very forcefully and running over people's you know, emotions and their desires, of course, that's terrible. If it's done with their participation and their goals at the center of it, then that's a benefit. The most difficult question with social justice that I think isn't getting attention is the question of what happens if we don't have managed retreat and we don't support people who want to relocate. Because some people do want to relocate. You see this in news articles after floods, people who don't want to live in a flood zone anymore, they're fed up with being flooded and rebuilding over and over again. They can't afford to elevate, they can't afford the new insurance premiums, they want out. And they might not have the resources to move on their own. Uh, this is true in the United States, it's true internationally. Moving is expensive and it's difficult. And sometimes people need help in order to do that. And a lot of politicians don't want to discuss managed retreat because it's politically sensitive. But if we don't discuss it, then we're leaving people without that support and we're leaving them without help that they really need. And that's an incredibly difficult problem. Elizabeth Rush has a great chapter in her book Rising in which she describes abandoned properties, people who have just left. And they didn't yep. leave through a managed retreat program. They didn't leave with support. They just abandoned their homes and whatever investment they'd made in those homes and moved on. And we have no idea how they're doing, if they're doing well, if they're receiving the support they need, if they lost everything when they decided to relocate. And wouldn't it be better if we could have a system to help people move away from at-risk places in a way that helps their long-term well-being? I don't know if it was in that chapter, one of the other ones, but just where she's talking about how so often communities of color and marginalized groups were forcibly moved into places that are on the margins already and that are prone to flooding or at risk from all sorts of different things, not just not just weather or sea level rise related. And it's just kind of really, really trying to not mm. perpetuate this cycle that's existed for a really long time that a lot of Americans don't even know about this perpetuation of injustice over generations. I think you raise a couple of really good points there. And I mean, one is that people are abandoning their homes. After Katrina, New Orleans had something like 20,000 abandoned properties a decade after Katrina. There were still 20,000 abandoned properties throughout the city. And that's a challenge, right? For I mean, that, that's bad for the people who left 
who probably had lost their shirts financially leaving their homes. It's bad for the neighbors who are sitting next to an abandoned house, you know, it's deteriorating. It's bad for the city who's trying to maintain those lots and figure out how to, you know, reboost their economy. It's bad for everyone involved. And again, this is, you know, just one of those, it seems like a very basic question. Wouldn't it be better if we had a managed retreat effort to organize and do something purposeful instead of just having people leave? Uh, we're seeing similar patterns on a smaller scale in Houston after Hurricane Harvey, people just leaving and abandoning properties. Internationally, you see this quite a lot in places. The other issue you raised is the, you mentioned the long-term cycle. And all around the world, in the United States and in other countries, the people who have the fewest resources to deal with disasters and deal with climate change are often living in the riskiest places. And it's for a lot of historic reasons. Sometimes it's from racism or classism. Sometimes it's from economics. The less desirable land is cheaper. So that's where lower income communities could afford housing and that's where they live. Sometimes it's a mixture of things or it's where the new development could take place. You know, if a city's growing, where else does it have space? Well, in the floodplain. And none of these are good reasons to allow that inequity to continue. But it's one of the challenges in managed retreat is that you're trying to undo decades or even centuries of inequality that has built up. And that's both a challenge and an opportunity, right? It's a place and a way to engage in this deep-rooted inequality and actually try to do something better about it and not just let it continue to perpetuate. Absolutely. You know, we've kind of focused mostly on talking about the situation in, in the United States, but I know you've worked in international settings as well. Probably it's similarly difficult in any kind of community to contemplate a move like this. I'm wondering if you've observed different ways of dealing with or kind of talking about these issues in other societies, or are they similar to the U.S. where we kind of just are like, la, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, oh, what? Sea level rise? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in many ways, working in the U.S. is harder about these issues because we are uniquely climate blind, <laughs> I'll say. So in some ways, other places are easier because they're more open about it, right? I was in the Philippines working with a disaster risk reduction group, and the Philippines is very, very aware of climate change and the risks that climate change poses and the need to do something and to do something drastic about it. So they're motivated, right? For them, it's more of a question of resources than it is a question of motivation. In the United States, it's often the reverse, that we have tons of money, relatively speaking, but it's about motivating people to do something about it and putting the right incentives in place. I actually think that the U.S. is one of the more difficult places to do this kind of relocation because we have such strong property rights and we have such a strong history of government not telling people where to build or how to build or what to do with their property. And that makes a lot of sense until the government is also paying for the recovery, paying for the insurance, right? So. The U.S. has built up a bunch of systems that actually make it more challenging to do this here than in some places. We've talked a little bit about some of the costs associated with, with managed retreat. What about some co-benefits? You know, we did talk about the opportunity to rebuild better. Are there any opportunities that communities can capitalize upon? So at a real practical level, there's a lot of benefits from managed retreat. People can move away from at-risk areas into safer places, which is a big benefit for the individuals. For the community that's remaining suddenly you have this open space. And we see the communities 
all over doing incredible things with that open space. So parks are a big one. Community gardens are a great one. Uh, wetland restoration, actually, when you put in wetlands and green open space, it absorbs floodwater. So it actually protects other homes in the area when you create this open space. Sometimes it's just about creating more beach access. You know, suddenly you have more access to the beach because that front row of, row of homes isn't in the way anymore. So there's a lot of ways that having this open space can actually help a community redesign itself and actually increase and improve its connection to the coast and to the water, just not by living on it. And that's really one of the, the cruxes here is that it's not about not interacting with the water or moving away from water or risk. It's about just not living there permanently, finding another way to connect other than living on it. It sounds like there's all these really great benefits that we've been discussing, but you mentioned at the top of the interview that managed retreat is only kind of one adaptation strategy, potentially. Are there examples of an area maybe where managed retreat is not a good option, or and then maybe what types of strategies that those communities might alternately pursue? So the three main categories of adaptation strategies, particularly in flood management, but in general, are considered uh, resistance, accommodation, and retreat. So resistance is doing things where you try to stop the hazard. So you put a, build a seawall, you put dunes on the beach, you prevent the water from reaching your house. So that is an option, and it's an option the United States has pursued in particular. Uh, I mean, it's used all over the world, but in the United States particularly. Then there's accommodation, which is, can we use the land in a way that when the water comes, it doesn't hurt uh, anybody. So these are every house you see on stilts. That's a type of accommodation, right? The water can come and can go and you can be safe on your second story and you're fine. And then retreat, of course, is moving people and assets away from the risk so that the water can come and go and it doesn't matter because you're just not there. So there's a lot of discussion about how we prioritize where these different adaptation strategies should occur. The most common one is to discuss it based on cost effectiveness. So the argument goes that we should build walls in front of dense, expensive infrastructure. So right. New York City, right? New York City, Manhattan, put a wall around Manhattan and New York City. It doesn't make sense to try and elevate, <laughs> right? Wall Street, you know, put it up on stilts. And there's not exactly space to do things like putting in oyster beds and dunes and beach nourishment there. The problem I see with using a straight cost-benefit analysis is that in the United States, we tend to build flood walls in front of rich white people because it's more cost-effective. You don't build a million-dollar flood wall in front of a $100,000 home. You build it in front of a million-dollar home because that's where it makes sense. And if I give you a million dollars to buy up homes, you can buy one million-dollar home or you can buy $100,000 homes. You're probably going to buy up the 10 homes. What this means is if we only look at the economics of this is it means that you're going to end up building walls in front of rich communities and you're going to end up relocating all the low-income communities. And I don't think that's right. And the challenge then is if you don't do it based on economics, what do you do it based on? And this is where I think that some of the role of government comes in is I think that these conversations need to happen at larger scales. I think that states need to have start having conversations about what they want their coasts to look like. Do they want it to be concrete walls in front of dense cities and then nobody in the rural areas? Do they want a combination of the two? 
does it make sense to save some rural areas, you know, some smaller towns with flood walls, even if it's not cost effective, just because that's the kind of coast we want to build? Sometimes you do things that aren't economically sensible just because it's the goal you want to achieve in the long term. And I think we're going to need some balance in how we do this. And it has to be made on values that's more than just dollars and cents. This has been a super interesting conversation for me. Certainly, I feel like I've learned a lot, but it's still, I mean, it's just, it's a very heavy topic. And so I'm wondering for you personally, as you continue to work with different communities, do research and work with students on issues related to managed retreat, are you feeling good <laughs> or, or positive about how we're moving in this, in the direction of thinking about these sorts of things? Yeah. Um, this changes. You could ask me different days and probably give you a different you know, answer based on uh, how I'm feeling that day. Most days I'm, I'm optimistic. I try to stay optimistic. My favorite quote on Main's Retreat is by U.S. Marine Corps General Oliver P. Smith. And he was leading a retreat during the Korean War. He says, retreat, hell, we're just advancing in a new direction. And it's, yeah, it's so wonderfully ura, right? So, so Marine. And yeah. And yet also really insightful from the idea that it's not about defeat. We're not losing. And I try to pause here and think about it. If we are losing, what is, what is it we're saying? We're losing a battle with the ocean. I mean, that's probably not the battle we want to have, we wanted to pick in the first place. Right. So I think it less about it less in terms of losing or defeat and more in terms of picking your battles. Is this, is maintaining this particular infrastructure in this exact location, this is the battle you want to fight, you know, that we want to put millions of dollars into, thousands of dollars into, and all of our energy and all of our risk. Is that the battle we want? And for me, the much more interesting and optimistic battle is this new direction. You know, if we're advancing in a new direction, it's thinking about what that new direction is. I get some of my most Optimistic days are when I'm reading science fiction or I'm looking at what artists are doing in this space. And I find it because the visions they come up with for the future are really inspiring. That what could we do? Climate change and climate adaptation has this hidden opportunity that we could change the way we live with each other, with nature. We could really do something different and do something better if we wanted to. And it's kind of fun to think about what all those options are and how we could get there. Absolutely. Well, right. thank you so much, Dr. Siders. This was super interesting and, and really fun for me. This was great. Thank so, you guys for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Now, I wanted to start by stating the obvious that discussions around topics like managed retreat are never easy. It's really difficult to divorce our heads from our hearts. And even if we can see the growing challenges and threats involved in living in places like coasts and floodplains, we don't really want to face change. It will require a huge paradigm shift, as AR said, starting with individuals as we redefine our connections with both place and with nature. Oh, I totally agree. But, you know, AR was the first to point out that strategic managed retreat is not the only adaptation option for these areas, and nor is it right for every situation. In fact, in many cases, communities actually may be better just adopting the tactics of resistance or accommodation. 
Overall, though, I mean, I'm at least encouraged that we're starting to have these conversations, as that itself is a positive trend showing how adaptation is becoming more of a priority in communities around the world. We should remember that even though climate change has so many negative effects for people in the planet, the ways we adapt can provide an opportunity to become more resilient and even right some social inequalities. In keeping with this positive line of thought, we'll conclude with another Climate of Hope segment. This time, we'll listen in on a conversation between Climate Ready's producer, John Matthews, and his 10-year-old son, Austin. After a recent class discussion on climate change, the two sit down to talk about how climate change impacts the psyche of a young generation and what gives Austin a sense of optimism. Well, one of the things that I'm, I'm really curious about is when I came to your class, your teacher, I thought she made a really good decision. You know, she was really smart in how she was trying to figure out what you all had been thinking about climate change. Do you sometimes feel anxious or nervous about what what the future might look like? Yeah, definitely. Really. I'm going to be completely honest. I think about it a lot, but I don't let that kind of control what I do, Mm -hmm. like in how I do stuff. But I still try and be better. Like I try and do better stuff for the environment and just for the people around me. Do you feel like that adults are taking the issue of climate change seriously to try and slow it down or stop it? Well, personally, I think it depends what adult you're talking about. Well, in in terms of being able to make maybe big, meaningful changes, like, do you think that there are people who are trying to do that? Yeah, but there are a lot of people who aren't trying to do that, and that's just hurting the world. It's not making life better for them. It's not making life better for anybody else. It might produce better in the short term, but the people who don't really care about that, I don't think that they're thinking about their kids their grandkids, their great-grandkids, they're just kind of oblivious to that fact. Do you think uh, kids worry as much as adults about climate change or more? Well, I think that it depends on what they're taught. Because if a kid is taught climate change is no big problem, we'll get through it in the end, No, we won't have to do anything with it, Earth will just work its way out, then they'll not really think about it but if if people are teaching their kids stuff particularly about climate change and how it's affecting animals and how it will reflect on you in the future how it will like impact it pretty much everything in the ecosystem if we do the correct things and i think that we can like stop climate change or well not stop climate change because that wouldn't necessarily be good for the Earth. Because Earth has its own own natural climate change. Mm -hmm. But still, I think that we can try and slow down our climate change. Yeah, that's pretty optimistic. Do you think uh, the kids in your class that day, that they were optimistic as well? Yeah, I think so. I wouldn't necessarily call myself inoptimistic or pessimistic, but I still think that we can do it. And I still think that most of those kids in my class... They were kind of scared about it, but I think that they knew that if they do the correct things, then it would be it would be better. At least it won't be as bad as, yeah. it, as it could be. 
if we can change things really soon, I think that my future will be better and it will start being more eco-friendly. And that will start reflecting on other people to be more eco-friendly. And if that happens, then I think that I think that we'll live in a world that we can be more proud of. Well, thanks for talking to me today. You're welcome. That will do it for this episode of Climate Ready. Thanks again to our interview guest, Dr. A.R. Siders, and to Austin Matthews for his Climate of Hope contribution. Until next time, everyone. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.